at the Yigal Alon Center in Israel. If you ever have the opportunity to visit there, you will get to view an astonishing archaeological find from the late 21st, uh, 20th century, rather, um, an ancient fishing boat from the first century. An ancient fishing boat from the first century was discovered back in 1986 on the northwest shoreline of the Sea of Galilee during a period of drought. So the water was receding, and there in the midst of the silt and the mud, some something was found there by some fishermen, and lo and behold, there it was. And they were able to dig it up. Its dimensions, dimensions are roughly about uh, 27 feet long, about 7.5 feet wide, and then about four feet high. Uh, it was large enough to have held roughly about 15 crew. Its shape was such that flat bottom enabled it to move in and out of shallow shorelines, you know, which of course you would need as, as a fishing crew. Uh, it was mostly made of cedar, but based on all of the, uh, the repair work that had been done on it, clearly because of all the other kinds of wood, roughly I think nine or ten other kinds of wood, obviously this thing had seen a lot of use over a long stretch of time and had gone through a lot of repairs over that stretch of time as well. To see it honestly, it just takes your breath away when you consider how old this is. I, I, my thought, my, the words that came to my mind when I saw it was, this is a glorious ruin. It's just a glorious ruin to, to behold uh, this thing. It's, it's officially known as the Galilee boat. Now, that said, the, the locals, in particular the people pushing the tourist business, refer to it as the Jesus boat. Now, that said, no one is seriously saying that there's any direct tie between this boat and Jesus of Nazareth. That said, it comes from the same time period and the same region and was the exact same design that Jesus and his disciples would have been uh, transporting around there on the Sea of Galilee. So therein it shouldn't surprise us that we would find artifacts like this. Historical artifacts like this from that time period that match in some way whether directly or indirectly, with the New Testament Gospels because the events that we read of in the New Testament Gospels are real. They are real and true as are the lessons that we can learn from these accounts, in particular what it means to follow Christ. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew 14, Matthew 14, we are picking up where we left off last week, moving on through this uh, series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 14, picking up in verse 22 and reading on through verse 33. So not quite to the end of, chap to the end of chapter 14, just shy. Uh, Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, reading on through verse 33. Hear now the word of God. Immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this um, historical account here. In Matthew's Gospel, we thank you for preserving it for us all these years. We thank you for the what is really a holy privilege at any time to have time to read it. Um, and we ask that you would read us. Uh, we ask that even as we are examining this passage, that we would be examined, uh, that you would give us insight uh, into its meaning, even as we are trying to, to understand what it's saying. Uh, we ask you to take us beyond just understanding of what it's saying and a real grappling of its significance. In particular, help us to learn more at the deepest level. Help us to learn more of who you are and what it means to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it is football season, which of course means that, well, it's time for the even the average uh, viewer, whether you're a fan of the college game or the professional game, the average viewer, to, to, to witness the athletic prowess and great feats of these men out there on the field. It's also an opportunity for the, um, the poor viewer, I guess you could say, to not observe but to listen in to the observations of the announcers as they are stumbling and bumbling trying to describe these uh, feats out there on, on the uh, field. Which means that if you're a fan at any level, of whether it's the college or the program, for the next several weeks, you're going to have to, I'm not going to say enjoy, endure, endure sanity-stretching assertions, uh, grammar-crushing expressions, and superlatives that destroy the bounds of reality as you were listening to these announcers. Um, it's just what you have to, have to endure as a sports fan. Um, now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying, that I'm saying Matthew is in any way guilty of that here in what he has described, but I will simply say you can understand why someone might say that. When you hear, when you're really hearing what he's saying, when you're really grappling with what he is describing here. I mean, we're talking about something that had never been heard or seen before. The words, with the words and works of Jesus, with the message and miracles of Jesus, he is saying very, very, very clearly that with his coming, the kingdom of God has arrived. And that's what you have here with this, this miracle. There's actually more than one here. I'll get into that in a little while. Um, but Jesus, think with me here. Jesus, that night, on that body of water, which is just water. It's just H2O, okay? 
Jesus that night on that body of water, storm-tossed as it was, comes to his disciples, did you hear this? Walking on water. Have you tried that? (laughs) Walking on the water. This is, to say this is unique is is an understatement. Um, This is beyond the ability, this is beyond the capacity of, of any leader, of any teacher at that time or any time ever since. He is just, he's standing out here above, towering over them all. He comes to his followers, his disciples, walking on water. That absolutely, just think with me, that absolutely positively has to transform what it means to follow him. If he, in fact, is one who is, can walk, come towards us and walking on water, his walking has to shape has to transform, has to revolutionize what it means for us to follow. His walking, our following. None other, none other but Jesus, Jesus Christ could do such a thing. He comes to his disciples walking on water, has to transform, absolutely transform, revolutionize what it means to follow him. How so? I've got these three points. We have these three points in your outline here. These three things. How does it transform us? How does it flip that upside down? to the degree that we're grappling with what it is that we're seeing here. Well, it tells us, uh, in terms of transforming and revolutionizing what it means to follow Jesus, as we look and pay heed to how all things happen according to His timing. That's the first thing. Secondly, the absolute necessity of our dependence on Him. And then thirdly, the assurance, the good assurance of His mercy towards us. Okay, so His timing... Our dependence and His mercy. All right, those three things are coming out very clearly in this text, and when you, to the degree we will let it, they will transform what it means to follow Him, at least in our own experience. The first being that all things happen according to His timing, according to His good and wise plans and purposes. Or if I could just slant that just a little bit, that is to say, in no way is He at our bidding. Right? Now think about how much trouble we get into when we try and flip that. In no way is Jesus at our bidding. It's all by His timing. You see that in at least two ways in this passage. First, now, He sends everybody away. This is kind of extraordinary. I thought Jesus was an attractional kind of figure. Well, actually, yes, normally, but in His wisdom and grace in this moment, He sends everybody away. He disperses the crowd. Verse 22, you see it right through, immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So there's a sense of urgency to what's happening here. The parallel accounts, the other Gospels that that record this for us, John in particular, explains that there was this this, uh, sentiment within the crowd gathered there that day to an understanding that Jesus, yes, he's a Savior, yes, he's a Messiah of a political kind. And so we're going to take him and make him our king. And if that means a military take-up-arms insurrection, then so be it. Jesus will have none of that. He will absolutely, positively have none of that. And so he disperses, he gets his disciples out of there immediately. He makes them. You note the word there? He makes them leave. Get. I think that's the, the Greek. Um... He, he removes them from the, the setting and he then disperses the crowd. 
He is going to do things His way. He is going to do things according to His timing. That's the first way you see this. See, all things happen according to His timing. That's the first. And the second way is in how He allows the struggle of His disciples in the storm on the sea. I don't know if you picked up on this detail, but when you think about it, it's very clear. Pick up verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, now that understand that that's roughly between 3 and 6 a.m. They left around 6 p.m. Okay? In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, these what do we have here? When you do the math, when you think it through, these experienced fishermen have been out there on that water rowing for some nine hours, and they have traveled roughly. When you understand the, the breadth, width, the dimensions of the Sea of Galilee, they've traveled about three miles in nine hours. This is, at best, a hard night struggling against strong winds. Now, note Jesus' delay. Where is Jesus? You know, he could have stopped this at any moment. He could have stopped that struggle, that sense of futility that they were experiencing at any moment. Where is he? He's up in the hills for an extended time of prayer. We'll come back to that in, in a little bit. So why then do the delay? Why then doesn't he just stop this? Because in, according to his good plan and purposes, this is for their best. Not their enjoyment, <laughs> but for their best. All things. He works all things according to his good, wise timing. Which means he is not prone to rush in for our relief. C.S. Lewis alludes to something of this in the screw tape letters. It's uh, there in your quotes and notes there, the top one. Uh, now, i got to explain real, real quickly, lest anybody misunderstand here. Um, Lewis himself describes this little book as the diabolical advice given by one devil to another. So you need to understand, this is the negative reverse. Everything that's being written in the screw tape letters. The idea is, it's the, the counsel of one senior demon to a underling, I guess you'd say, as to how to trip up and, and do under, do badly, do poorly to the, the faith, the, the walk, the spiritual walk of this, this new Christian. All right, with that in mind, understand then the enemy is God from Screwtape's perspective, okay? He wants them, here we go, he wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. If only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. You see, Jesus, doing all things according to his timing, his wisdom, his plan, his purpose, it might just mean that it's a good thing for your GPS to malfunction and you get lost on that road trip. 
It might just mean that it's, it's a good thing that you have to wait over the course of a long weekend for the test results from the lab. It might just mean that um, you might have to endure that time of living in limbo, no man's land, between housing arrangements and even a job. Now, he, uh, he does these things as Lewis infers here, implies here, often to test us, to expose us, therein to deepen our faith and love and reliance upon Him. But unless the pressure is put on, that testing, that pressure, is not going to reveal, there's, there's no revelation of anything until you've been exposed. He will, uh, he can intervene. He can intervene at any time. And eventually he will. But sometimes not after a long night of nine hours of rowing and going three miles. And that's all you have to, to show for but all according to His wisdom and His plans and purposes. Jesus, I just say, say this again, He comes to us walking on water. He comes to us walking on water. That just absolutely transforms what it means to, to follow Him. Now these storms, these storms, whether real or metaphorical, these storms, whether real or metaphorical, metamorphical, metaphorical, uh, show us also the necessity of our dependence on Him. That's the second point. Um, and we see this in two ways. In both what you see with, with Peter, excuse me, with Jesus up there in the hillside, and with Peter down there on the, on the water level. And so with Jesus praying to His Father, I said we're going to come back to that, so I want to do that now. Verse 23, uh, And after He had dismissed the crowds, He went up onto the mountain by Himself to pray. Now, I don't know, are, you, are we hearing the wonder of what we just heard? Are we seeing the wonder of what we just saw? This is the second person of the Trinity on his knees. This is the eternal incarnate Son of God in communion with his Father up in the hills in prayer. This is a wonder to consider. And in the reasons why we see him praying as we do is because he is the perfect mediator. He is absolutely, positively, completely God and absolutely, positively, completely man at the same time. Which means he had to eat, he had to sleep, and he had to pray. He is dependent upon his Father. It meant also as a mediator, he is fully aware and able to identify with the mutual interests of each party that he's mediating for. And so we see him praying here, likely for the physical safety of his disciples there on that sea that night. And also, quite likely, for his own strength as he is facing yet again the temptation to take the easy way out. 
He is praying. He is praying. In that we see the necessity of our own dependence. And can I just use the, the very simple, the, the if-then argument? The, the, the argument from, from greater to lesser? If Jesus, if Jesus, our mediator, stands in need to take hold of time alone in prayer, are you kidding me? How much more do we? How much more? Do we? I mean, how much, how, how easy, how easy is that point to make? But how hard to hear and to take hold, to take heed of, you know, come tomorrow morning. That's the first way we see our dependence. In just in Jesus is upon the fathers. The second is, as Peter is looking to Jesus, there's a parallel here, uh, uh, going down to verse 28. Jesus is now coming across the water. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, let me be clear on this point. In no way, with what we see of Peter in this moment, is presumptuous foolishness. Some people will make that case. That's a very poor case to make. I don't know if you've heard that kind of teaching. I would just say, take your old notes and throw them away. They lied to you. This is not presumptuous foolishness on Peter's part. Think with me here. His assumption about Jesus is absolutely right. If Jesus could come walking towards us, on the water, then surely he can help Peter do the same. And in fact, when he calls out and asks Jesus about this, Jesus doesn't just suggest it. He commands him. So he commands him to get out of that boat. Oh, by the way, and notice how he does have the courage. Can you imagine doing this? Can you imagine? I mean, I describe the dimensions of that boat. This is not a raft where you just roll off. But, you know, this is a four-foot wall going up on the side of the hull of this boat. You have to launch your leg, hike that leg over the, the hull of that boat. And as an experienced fisherman, you're kind of familiar with how the way water works. And you put your weight on that. Peter has the courage to do this, not the foolishness to do this. He has the courage to do this, to put the weight of his body into that water, and then what happens? He walks. He walks. This is not presumptuous foolishness. This is this beautiful dynamic that every one of us in this room should be able to identify with. And Jesus hits it like this. Little faith. Little faith. Faith, yes. Little faith. Faith, yes. Little faith. Little faith. Little faith. In fact, you could almost say that was Peter's nickname. It's really mine too, probably yours, I think. Little faith. Meaning, on the one hand, there's a lot there to work with. And on the other hand, there's a lot of work to be done. One moment, Jesus is looming larger than anything. In the next, it's the waves. It's the wind. That's the dynamic. And in this we see Jesus, his love 
for the little faiths. His compassion for us, even in the midst of our doubts, which is so beautifully encouraging. If we're hearing this, if we're seeing this, and also, though we get still pointing to the necessity of our dependence upon Him. The absolute necessity of our dependence upon Him as we're following Him. As we look, we consider His example as his, He's depending upon the Father. Peter's example, His experience as He is, is depending upon Jesus. We see this necessity of dependence. And I will add this preparation as well. Here's what I'll explain that as we go. Here's what I mean. Okay, so you got we have these horrible storms right now. Harvey in Texas, Irma in Florida. If you know a storm like that is coming, it's time to make some preparations. Get your fuel, get your water, get your food. Board up the windows. Find out where the evacuation routes are. I mean, all that's move the cars to higher ground. All those things before it hits. Before it hits, make those preparations. You understand that there's a there's a there's a, a an enmeshing here that you see in this passage in terms of, of of the necessity of our dependence on Jesus and the preparations involved for that. Here's what I mean by that. With Jesus, we see again that dependence in the extended time in prayer, right? That he is taking with his father. Again, how much more so us? With Peter. With Peter, as he as Jesus is looming larger than the winds and the waves, he is able then to walk towards Jesus even on the water. Okay. How would he, how then would Jesus be able to loom larger in our eyes than the winds and the water? By our spending time with him. This is what I'm trying to say in terms of the, the way the necessity of the dependence enmeshes with the necessity of the preparations. How will Jesus, in the midst of the storm, loom larger in our eyes than the storm itself? The time we're spending with him before the storm. You see that? Just kind of nod. I kind of need you to nod. Not off, but just nod. All right. He comes to us walking on the water. That transforms. Again, it's a simple point. It transforms what it means to follow him. Last thing, because not only do we see these storms, the reality of these storms, whether real or metaphorical, but also just the reality of our faltering in the midst of these storms, every one of us. And we need to hear this, and we need to see something of this as well. Well, we see two things here. First, we see the Lord of the storm in the heart of the Lord. The Lord of the storm just picking it where we left off, verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, understand what they are, what's being described here. Jesus does not come to them, as you might expect in terms of our experience, stroke upon stroke in the water, he comes towards them stride upon stride on the water. This is unheard of. Again, who else could do this? We read just a little while ago from Psalm 77. Let me just uh, take you back there here in your, your bulletin there on the right-hand side. I'll pick up, uh, I don't know, but halfway down on the, on the way this is copied here. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. 
The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Who is this coming to them upon the waters? But the Lord of the storm himself. None other than the Lord of the storm himself. And what, what did they hear? That's what they saw. God himself coming towards them. What did they hear? Just to emphasize this point, going back to verses 26-27, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, of course they were, and said it is a ghost and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This thing in the middle, it is I, literally is I am. Now, on the one hand, you can make a case, well, that was just a standard way of identifying yourself. True. It's also the divine name of Israel's covenant God. I am. As he, dis as he discloses himself to Moses there in the burning bush. Who should I say has sent me to you? I am. Yahweh. Yahweh. That's in the heart of this, and that's really the only one when you think about it, that this admonition can be heard, take heart, because in the middle is Yahweh, do not be afraid. That's who's coming. That's what they've seen, that's what they've heard. So they're, when they're crying out, it's the Lord of the storm himself that is hearing them and coming towards them. But with that we have his, not just uh, the, the Lord of the storm, he is Lord of mercy. We see the heart of the Lord here. You see this in his words to the twelve. I read that just a moment ago. They are they're exhausted, they're spent, they're physically, uh, sh well, emotionally, physically just, just shaken up. And he speaks these words of encouragement to them. And did you catch this? Immediately. It's the second time we've seen that word in this text. The first was immediately get out of here. That was in verse 22. Now here in, uh, in verse 27, you have immediately... Jesus speaks these words of encouragement to them, not waiting any longer than he has to. And then you see the exact same thing with Peter. Verse 31, and this, this hand that he extends to Peter. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, yes, Jesus is critiquing him, but for the sake of instructing him. He waits no longer than absolutely necessary. Immediately, we read, again, that's the third time we see that in this text, immediately moving towards him, pulling him up, grabbing hold of him. He loves the little faiths. That should encourage our hearts this morning. The assurance of his mercy towards us. Nobody else can do this. And it would be madness to turn towards anyone or anything else thinking you're going to find help, assistance, rescue, mercy in this way. In the world of superheroes, hang with me here, you don't want Aunt May, you want Spider-Man. <laughs> you don't want Alfred, you want Batman, right? You don't want Jimmy Olsen, cool watch and all, but you want Superman, and as funny as she is, you don't want Etta Candy, you want Wonder Woman. That's superhero land. Now back to real world. When we understand who this is, it is madness to call upon 
turn towards, trust in, lean on, count on anyone else but the Lord of the storm himself who has a heart of mercy towards the little faiths. Why on earth would we look anywhere else? Why on earth would we look? When we can see here so clearly, so clearly to our great heart's solace and comfort that no one is too far gone and nothing is beyond his reach. No one is too far gone and nothing, no matter how dire, no matter how dark or, or dreary the, the scenario, the context may be, no one is too far gone or no one is too far to reach. We've got Jesus coming towards us, walking on the water. To the degree that we hear that, it will transform, absolutely transform, um, how we follow him. Just end with this. It's kind of like the solar eclipse. It's easy to miss the, the main point. I don't know if you remember a few day, you know, a few weeks ago, right? The, 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 the thing up in the sky. Um, there's a little news about it leading up to it. Um, you know, it was it would been very easy, depending on who you were with, to you're, you're focused in on enjoying the snacks and engaging conversation and checking the tracking data on your cell phone and making sure that the telescope and the camera are just so. And if you're not careful, because this thing's going to last like three minutes, if that, you can miss it. You can miss it. If you're not careful, you'll miss it. Because there's a lot going on in this text. There's a whole lot going on. The big thing, the climax is at the end. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. You see, the climax is not, is actually not the walking on the water or the ceasing of the waves. It's the worshipping of the Creator. That's the climax. The main point is not Peter, but Jesus. Peter is but the window. His experience is but the window to see who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Jesus comes walking on the water. Like I said at the beginning, that makes him far beyond, far above, marks him out. He stands out above all the others that ever has been or ever will be, which means if Christ stands out, because Christ stands out, Christianity stands out. This is why we as Christians are obligated to make the exclusive truth claims that we have to make. Because Jesus is who He is. He stands out. He is the Son of God Himself. It's why He is the only way, the only hope, because of who He is. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our opinions or Anything it has to do with completely with him. It's why he can speak into every area of life, and we, if we are to the degree or we are wise, will hear what he is saying even into our lives. Because he stands above, he stands out, he is over. He is the eternal Son of God coming towards us in the water and now in the boat. Ours is to simply cry out, truly you are the Son of God and worship. Let's pray. Lord, yours is the wisdom. Ours should be the trust. Yours is the wisdom. Ours should be the trust. Yours is the strength. Ours should be the dependence. It should be the dependence.
Yours is the mercy. Ours, to the extent we'll acknowledge it, is the need. We ask, we humbly ask that you, in your mercy, whatever happens this week, whatever is in store for us, whatever is ahead of us this week, that you would help us to remember indeed that you've come towards us walking on the water. Walking on the water towards us, towards us. Walking on the water. We pray this in your name. Amen.